The reading is from Mark, chapter 3, 13 to 35. There are Bibles at the back if you want one, but you've probably all got a phone. So, chapter 3. Jesus appoints the twelve. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve, that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, to whom he gave a great name, which means son of thunder. <laughs> Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a great crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebul. By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Thanks very much. Good evening. Good to see you. On a wet Sunday, I hope you're having a good weekend. Weather was nicer yesterday, less nice today. Um, just while I get myself set up, could you do me a favor, turn to somebody next to you, uh, maybe somebody you haven't spoken to yet, and start to discuss, ask the question, what does family look like to you? Okay, what does family mean? What is family? Go for it. Okay, good job. That was about 60 seconds. I feel like you could have just kept talking and talking and talking forever. That's good. That's good. Lots of thoughts about family. Families are weird. Families are wacky. Families have baggage. Families have stories. Families are fun. Families are a place of home for many of us. For some of us, family is a tricky word. 
For some of us, we have to find family outside of our biological family. That's okay, that's normal. But families are complex, okay? Families, communities, they're complex. They're weird and wonderful. Dan was just standing here talking about Alpha, talking about joining a community, a new community for him. I'm, I'm going to speak this evening about that kind of community, that kind of family, how weird and wonderful it can be. It's great to hear from the horse's mouth how weird that community can be sometimes, <laughs> and wonderful also. I just want to start, however, acknowledging something. I'm having a good weekend. Yesterday I was at uh, the wedding of two very good friends of mine. They go to this church, Johnny and Ailey. It was awesome. It was a good time. Lots of people here were there as well. It was a really good time. It was a beautiful day. Sun was shining. And I hope you're having a brilliant weekend as well. But for many of us, this weekend has been difficult. For many of us, we have been thinking about the loss of a very prominent public figure, the Queen. And for many of us, that has maybe passed you by a little bit. You know, for many of us, that hasn't been something that's hugely impacted you. I'm not a huge royalist myself. I have nothing against them, but I'm not a huge royalist either. I have to admit, I didn't get upset at her death. For me, I have to admit, I'm not saying this is the right way to think, but for me, I was a little bit like strong, passionate Christian woman dies age 96 peacefully at home. That was my opinion. Not necessarily that it was a huge newsworthy thing. However, I have to admit that the Queen is a huge, public, prominent figure, a force mostly for good for such a long time. And for some people, they have gotten upset. And that has surprised me. And when I've looked into that and I've thought about it and I've read some people's comments about it, it's made me really think about the world that we live in at the moment. And I just want to quickly acknowledge that right at the beginning. For some of us, the death of the Queen has been hard. And maybe that has surprised you. And one of the reasons that may have been is because we live in unstable times, insecure times. We live in times where fear seems to be the loudest thought and emotion going on in culture and society. There are so many crises happening around us, it's hard now to keep track. We had the pandemic, we've got the climate crisis, we've now got the cost of living crisis, we've now got energy prices soaring through the roof. It's hard to keep track. A figure like the Queen was a stable figure, a stable thing that we all shared, and we have now also lost that. I just want to acknowledge that. It would be hard to speak to you this evening without acknowledging the world that we live in right now and what's happening in the world that we live in. So if you are feeling that sense of instability and insecurity, you have come to the right place. This is a place that is messy, just as family is messy. But it is a place where we put our trust in something, in someone who is stable, who is secure, who is eternal and unchanging, someone that you can put your trust and your hope in, the person of Jesus. If you come here feeling shaky and full of worries, you've come to the right place. 
Jesus is described as the Prince of Peace. That person that Dan was describing earlier, Jesus, he is also described as the Prince of Peace. We run the Alpha course to ask questions about him. It's starting on the 28th of September, 10 weeks long. Come along, it's for everybody. Christian, not Christian, whatever you call yourself, however long you've been in this church, come along. Hear about Jesus. You've come to the right place. So be you. Bring all of what's inside of you. You don't have to show up and be glitz and glamorous. I had a great day yesterday, but I'll admit times for me at the moment are tough. I'm, I'm battling some stuff. I'm struggling with some stuff. Life is not smooth, just like for many of us. I might have big peaks, but I'm also enduring some lows. But I'm with you here in the right place. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. And tonight, in this passage, we're looking at this person, and we're looking at the type of people that he wants, okay? Our passage opens up right at the beginning, verse 13. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. We're going to start talking about the kinds of crowds, the kinds of people that he wants, the kinds of people that he is drawing to himself, okay? And tonight, I want us together, for real, to think about these three things. I want you to know that you are wanted. That is to be known. I want you to know that you're wanted and be known. Two, I want you to be compelled by the one who wants you. I want you to be compelled. And three, I want you to be sent by the one who compels you. Okay, I want you to be known. I want you to be compelled by the one who knows you. And I want you to be sent by the one who compels you. And I keep saying you, but I mean us. I'm included in this. Okay, let's get in it. So who does he want? Let's have a little look at this crew, this crack squad. If we really believe that Jesus is who he says he is, then we believe that Jesus is coming now to save and turn everything around. Okay, we're believing, we're starting to get this sense that he's the hero, the protagonist of the story. And if that's true, he needs a squad. He needs a fellowship. Okay, I don't know if you've seen or read The Lord of the Rings. I'm a big fan. It's awesome and it's, and it's quite similar. It's quite similar to what's going on here. In The Fellowship of the Ring, we get all this backstory of stuff that's happened. There's been wars that have been waged. There's been darkness and evil that have been taking over people's lives. And it looks like that was winning. There have even been attempts to turn that darkness around, and they failed, or they only half succeeded. And we arrive at the Fellowship of the Ring at this crucial point where they're going to make a choice. We're going to rise up. We're going to take one last bash at defeating this darkness. And they need to assemble a squad, a dream team a fellowship, and it's made up of all different kinds of, of not just people, but beings and creatures, and they come together to defeat the darkness once and for all. It's a bit similar to our passage. We've heard the backstory. The Old Testament is filled with all the stuff that's happened in humanity to separate themselves from God, all the hardship, all the difficulty, and all the attempts that God has made to reach out and pour out his love, to let them know, I am your God. You are my people. Come back to me. And they maybe only half succeeded, maybe even failed at times. So God, at this point in history, has assembled the crack squad, the dream team, the fellowship, led by the person of Jesus himself. He has come down once and for all to defeat the darkness. So what, who, 
does he want? What kind of people does he want? Who's he after? Who's made the cut? Well, as I said, family, communities, fellowships, they're weird and wonderful. We've got Simon, who he called Peter, as it said, says in our passage. The context here is Simon was a person who was easily swayed, easily bent, easily broken. That's what his name meant at the time. He was somebody who was reed-like, would sway like the grass in the wind, would swither from one thing to the next, didn't commit. But Jesus, Jesus changed his name. He said, I'm going to call you Peter. It means rock man, stable. I'm going to put my trust in you. I'm going to build my church on you. I'm going to put a lot on you because I believe that you're the man for the job. But then when push came to shove and Jesus has been arrested and he's standing trial and he's being tortured, some people start to gather around Peter and they say, you're one of him. You're with him, aren't you? You're like, you're affiliated. You're in the same crew. You're in this like weird fellowship, aren't you? And he denies it. Three times he denies it. He says, no, it's not me. It's not me. It's not me. He abandoned Jesus when Jesus needed him the most. Would you want him in your fellowship? Jesus did. Then we've got James and John, as we heard, a.k.a. Sons of Thunder. Actually kind of sounds cool nowadays, like a rock band or something. Um, I said rock band like I'm 50 years old. <laughs> Just banned. Um, God, James and John, a.k.a. Sons of Thunder. What that means, basically, is they get mad. They get mad easily. They're hot-tempered. They're quick to anger. You know, Jesus, the leader of this crack squad, is described as being slow to anger and abounding in love. These guys are the opposite. They're quick to anger. They're hot-tempered. They are the opposite. Jesus is assembling people who are the opposite of him. Would you assemble people who are the opposite of him? These two Muppets shouldn't be in the fellowship. But they're there. Would you want them? Jesus did. Then we've got Thomas. Poor old Thomas. He does one thing. And for the rest of time is immortalized for that one thing. It's encapsulated in one word that comes now before his actual name. Come on, what am I thinking of? What do you think of when I say Thomas? Doubting. Oh, poor guy. He asks one flipping question, and that's it, written off for history. Do you know, side note, I actually love that bit. Jesus, but for the backstory is basically Jesus is crucified, dead. Nails pierced through his wrists, he's dead. He then rises from the dead, three days later, major spoiler, and he comes, what do you do if you just rose from the dead after being crucified? You would go probably straight to your mates, that's what he does, Jesus goes straight back to the fellowship, I'm still here, don't worry about it. And Thomas says, well I'll tell you exactly what Thomas says, I've got, I've got it in the King James Version because it just sounds epic. Right, listen to this. Thomas goes, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and thrust my hand into his side. He was pierced with a spear in his side as well. I will not believe. So Shakespearean, it's epic. He doubts. And Jesus responds by letting him put his fingers in the scars, in the wounds, his most vulnerable places. A place, places on his body that have reminded marks on his body that remind him of his greatest pains. 
he lets Thomas touch them. Do you know, because Thomas doubted, he got the most intimate experience of Jesus than anyone else. I bet the disciples lined up behind him afterwards. Doubts are good. It's just a side note. Doubts are good. But he doubts all the same. Would you have him in your squad? Jesus did. Judas. Big elephant in the room, this guy. Peter abandoned Judas, but Judas really betrayed him. Okay, backstory, Judas basically sells him out. Sells him out to, uh, to his oppressors, to the guys who want to execute him. Sold him out literally for money. And he led, uh, he led these guys to Jesus, revealed his identity with a kiss. Something so intimate, something so personal, something that showed their friendship and their connection over, the, or over what we think is the, the previous three years of living together and, and working together and out there doing some amazing stuff. He brings it all down just for money. And that sets in motion the events which lead to Jesus' arrest, torture, crucifixion, and mutilation. Judas becomes so wracked with guilt, he actually commits suicide. Unable to forgive himself. Does he sound like fellowship, hero, crack squad material? Jesus thought he did. Simon the Zealot. To be a zealot in those times means you were a religious fanatic. You were a radical. You weren't afraid of inciting riots and major protests. Simon was a troublemaker. He was a wild card, not afraid of violence or confrontation. Okay, love the passion, but do we want you on the A team or are we going to keep you on the bench for a bit? Well, Jesus brought him into the fellowship. Matthew! Many of us know Matthew and where we found Matthew right at the beginning. Matthew was a tax collector. Tax collectors at the time were hated, they were despised. Many of us have heard this before. But in, in those times, in, these, in this part of the world, the Roman Empire were the ruler, but they weren't native to those lands. They'd come in, they'd taken over. And everyone had to follow the rule of the Romans. They kind of were the bad guys. They were the occupying nation. They were the enemy of Matthew's people. And yet Matthew decided in order to survive, in order to make a bit of cash, he'd work for them. And he worked for them by collecting from his people the taxes and giving it to the Roman Empire. He symbolized everything that was wrong with the oppressors. He joined them. That's almost worse than the oppressors themselves. I used to work in prisons, and I used to run alpha courses, actually, and, and do various other things. And it, it, was, it was great, it was amazing, and it, it was intense. Um, and sometimes I'd tell my friends about it. And when I told my friends about it, they'd, you know, it's, it's quite interesting, you know, it's, made, you know, it's a bit sexy working in prisons. I, I thought definitely to myself. Um, but then I'd talk about how I also worked with sex offenders and people with charges against children. And my friends, some of them would find this really hard to reconcile. And that's, that's, that's friends who, who go to church as well, you know? Not, not, just, not just friends who don't go to church. Some people found that really hard to put together. They were outcasts, these tax collectors. A bit like sometimes how we treat certain members of our society. We push them to the side. 
when they've done stuff that really kind of strikes a chord with us and we just can't reconcile it to ourselves, we just outcast. Yeah, work with murderers, work with thieves. Don't work with those. Well, Matthew was a bit like one of those. He was an outcast. You want that kind of outcast in your fellowship? Can you trust Matthew, who betrayed your people? Jesus can. He wants him. We've got fishermen, tradesmen. We've got young men. Some scholars even think that some of these 12 disciples, they might have been as young as 13, 14, 15 years old. That's young. Too young. Too immature. Too inexperienced. Not good enough to join the fellowship. Jesus thought different. Then when Jesus goes into the house and more people start to join this weird and wonderful community... The way he speaks to them, I think, tells us more about who he wants. I mean, firstly, his own family call him crazy. They call him crazy right off the bat, his family. It says in our passage, the crowds gather in this house. It gets really busy, and his family have a look, and they go, he's out of his mind. Even his family are starting to question him, but they're there. What a great indicator of who's assembling. Like, this crowd of people must have been wild. In the crowd, we've got the high and lofty. We've got the teachers of the law. They're chipping in and they're having digs. They start to question Jesus. You know, they're the opposite of the tax collectors, these teachers of the law. Actually, they were kind of revered and respected in the community. People came to them. They learned from them. They even followed them. These teachers of the law would have had their own disciples. They're in the community too. Yeah, okay, they're digging and they're criticizing and they're skeptical, but they're there in the house. You know, when we do Alpha stuff... You, you get to see all different kinds of people. And generally, you can kind of fit these people into three categories. First, you get people who come along to Alpha who are buzzing. And they're like, they're just lapping it up and they're drinking it in. And it's, and it's good stuff and they can't wait till next week. Then secondly, you've got people who come along and they're a bit aggro. They've got some questions. They've, uh, they've maybe even got some hurts. You know, they've got some issues with what they're hearing. And they're there, and they're kind of like, they're trying to trip you up, and they're trying to find, they're trying to navigate, they're trying to work it around, they're trying to use the video against it, and it's kind of, it can be a bit tense, it can be a bit back and forth. And then thirdly, you get people who come along, and these people only tend to come along for maybe one, two, three weeks. They're good. They're just like, I'm good. This is cool, but I'm good. Don't need it. It's interesting. Not really for me. No, I don't have any questions. That's all fine. Probably won't come back. Do you know, I would take, firstly, the really hungry, keen people any day of the week. Obviously, really easy to work with. Secondly, I would definitely take the aggro. The people brimming with questions or brimming even with hurts and experiences. Go, yeah, but what about this? But oh my goodness, nothing's more hard to try and run an alpha with than somebody who just doesn't care. Apathy kills. Yeah, okay, these teachers of the law, they're criticizing. They're a bit aggro. They're throwing questions. They're trying to trip Jesus up. But they're there. They're engaged. They're invested. The kinds of people that fit into Jesus' family are people who doubt, people who ask questions. Sometimes people who are a bit aggro. He doesn't mind. He wants them too. 
When they publicly scrutinize Jesus, these teachers of the law, he responds in two ways, which I think also show us some of the people who are now in the crowd. So we've got these disciples, got the teachers of the law, we've got the family there. Who's in the crowd? Firstly, Jesus responds sarcastically. So they accuse him of working for Satan. Okay? As a Christian, I believe in God, and I believe that God is, is love, and I believe that he's the author of the universe, and I believe that every good gift comes from God, and I believe that he loves me and knows me and he made me. Okay? But also as a Christian, I believe that there is an enemy to who God is, and that is personified in Satan. Okay, And there's a lot of kind of discussion about who Satan is and where Satan comes from, but fundamentally there is an enemy. He has a name. He's called Satan. And they were very aware of this at the time. They thought Jesus is working for Satan. He's in league with Satan. And Jesus responds by saying, if I'm working for the devil, then why am I tearing up his work, basically? A house cannot be divided. It cannot stand if it is divided. If I'm working for Satan, then why am I clearing up his mess? A.K.A. Bring it into 2022. If the greatest football team on the planet, Portsmouth Football Club. (laughs) Thanks, little applause. Excellent. Ever get back to a league where they can play Southampton again, which is an infamous Southend derby then why on earth would Colby Bishop, a forward for Pompey, boot the ball into his own goal? That's not a very good tactic. It's not smart. Jesus is basically saying, are you dumb? He's speaking to a bunch who like to laugh, maybe who have a dark sense of humor. Cardinal Louis Tegel from the Philippines he was interviewed at a conference that I went to, and it was really interesting. And he's seen a lot of atrocities in, in where he's from and supported a lot of people who've gone through a lot of tough stuff. And he was asked, you know, he's got this little smile on his face, and it's infectious. He's got this little cheeky grin. And he's there, he was asked, like, how can, you, how can you keep this little cheeser going when you've seen so much, you've carried so much? And it was great. He was, like, he was like, I take Jesus very seriously, but I don't take life that seriously. You know, the kinds of people that Jesus is talking to, he knows he can get away with a little sarcastic, dark humor. Because he's like, these are people who are tough, who have been through some stuff. They can take it. They can laugh. In fact, they probably need a laugh. It's rough people from a rough town. Another thing that Jesus says, which tells us a bit about who, who, the kinds of people he wants and who he's gathering, is he paints this weird metaphor about robbing somebody's house. You've got to tie up a strong man in order to rob the house. It's kind of really weird. It's jarring. And we kind of just like, sometimes I read the Bible, and I'm just like, oh, well, yes, obviously Jesus. But you kind of look at it, and you're like, that's just kind of like a random, like, or if you were robbing somebody's house, you wouldn't. But I wonder if it sheds a little light on the kind of people that he's talking to. You know, I believe that Jesus is a master communicator. I believe, if I believe that Jesus is who he says he is, and I believe he knows how to speak to people and communicate with people. We see this in the Gospels. Throughout the Gospels, he sort of changes his tact on how he speaks to people and relates to people. For some people, he's quite stern and strong. For some people, he's very soft and meek. For some people, he's miraculous and big. For some people, he's very simple and plain. 
For these people, he's making a metaphor about thievery and thieving. Do you think maybe he's chatting to some people who know a bit about thieving? Maybe this motley crew that are gathering in this house, this fellowship that is growing, maybe they're not all clean cut. He wants them all. He wants the high and lofty. He wants the people who ask the questions. He wants the angry. He wants the broken. He wants the people who are going to screw up and screw him over. He wants the people who've got it all together. He wants the people who've got a bit of a criminal record. He wants them all. He wants you. He wants me. You're wanted. And he wants him to be compelled. He doesn't just want crowds for the hype. He doesn't just tell a sarcastic joke and paint a weird picture and leave it at that. In verses 28 to 29, he says, Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all of all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He kind of slides this in and goes, Yeah, we can have a laugh and I'll talk to you on your level, but let's make sure we all know this. If you reject the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit being a part of who God is, Jesus also being a part of who God is, therefore if you reject the Holy Spirit, you're rejecting Jesus, you're rejecting God. You reject God and you're rejecting forgiveness. You're rejecting forgiveness, you're rejecting being a part of this fellowship. You cannot be forgiven if you reject the forgiver, is what he's saying. He's saying there's a new way. He's saying, yeah, we'll have a laugh and I'll bring around this motley crew, but don't mistake, this isn't a joke, this isn't silliness. I'm the real deal. I'm building a fellowship. We're going to change the world. It's compelling. He wants us to be compelled. You know, of all the images of the Queen that I've seen this week, none have captured my attention more than this one. I think it's awesome. We've got a monarch on her knees of huge earthly significance. One of the most prominent figures of the 20th and 21st century. Like, can be quoted forever for eternity of all the incredible things that she said and done. And she's on, un, on her knees bowing to the one true king. She is utterly, despite being the most compelling figure of the 20th and 21st century, she is utterly compelled by the one true monarch of heaven and earth for all eternity. The greatest friend you'll ever know, the kindest saviour has ever been, the hero of heaven, the Lord of lords, crucified, resurrected, a Nazarene, a carpenter, sometimes sarcastic, gathers weird people around him, King Jesus. Jesus is compelling to the least, the thieves, the liars, the betrayers, the workies, the daft, the young, the abandoners, the radicals. But he's also compelling to the high and the lofty, the grand, the royal, the teachers of the law. You know, whoever you are, this I know. You are one of those people that he wants. Maybe you're high and noble, prone to skepticism or doubt. Maybe even cynicism, he wants you. 
Maybe you're low and humble. You don't have a lot or have much to offer. He wants you. Maybe you're young and you're full of questions, lacking in experience and unsure about life, frustrated by maybe, maybe, maybe frustrated by the adults around you. Lots of questions, lots of thoughts, lots of ideas, lots of dreams. He wants you. Maybe still you're passionate, emotionally driven, prone to highs and lows, anger, sadness, worry. Maybe you doubt and you fear. He wants you. Maybe you're bad. Bad with your words, bad with your actions. Maybe you're ashamed of how bad you've been. Maybe you're guilty. Maybe you're really bad and you can't even forgive yourself. He wants you. Maybe you're liked. Maybe you're admired. Maybe you're compelling. He wants you. Maybe you're disliked. Maybe you're despised, unwanted by so many, so often an outcast. He wants you. You know, I look at that list and I realize I'm all these people. I'm liked. I'm passionate. I'm admired. <laughs> In my dreams. <laughs> now you know I'm bad. I'm, I can be disliked. I'm ashamed. I'm clever. I'm critical. I ask good questions. I'm lowly. And I'm pretty simple. To be honest, I'm mainly simple. You know, he wants me. And I go through that list. I think we're all of these things. All of the time. Every other day of the week, we flick through these things. We're all wanted. So when Jesus calls on you tonight and says that I want you, and I want you to be compelled by me. What are you going to do? Right at the beginning of our passage, it says what they did. It says he called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. In verse 13. And then what happened after that is that third point is he sent them. He told them that they were wanted. He made them utterly compelled. And then he sent them. Verses 14 and 15 say what the plan is. Once you know that you're wanted, and once you're utterly compelled, this is what the plan is. Verses 14 and 15, they say that the disciples, he wanted them to go and preach and go and drive out demons. Well, that means he wanted them to go and spread the message that it's not just about them, it's about all of us. We are wanted by Jesus, King Jesus. 
And he wants us not just to go and spread that message, but he wants us to drive out the forces that are telling us lies, that are telling you are not wanted unless you earn it. And even when you earn it, you are still not wanted enough to satisfy that feeling inside of you. The lies that come from the enemy, the demons that possess us and drive us to greed, based out of fear, I must have more and protect it because somebody might steal it in corruption and injustice. I must place myself high so that I don't get dragged down and crushed. These forces are affecting our personal lives. These forces of fear are affecting our personal lives, but they're affecting our culture and our society. I used to listen to Radio 1. I got quite bored of the grime. I like grime, I like rap, but I just got a bit bored, and I love drums and guitar riffs. So I moved to Radio 2. I got a bit bored of Radio 2 quite quickly. I went to 5 Live, but I got a bit bored of like, hearing from callers from Sully Hull complaining about Sully Hull Moors and how their football team aren't doing enough or whatever. So I moved to Radio 4, thinking this is going to be as plastic as it's going. The Arches was on Radio 4. How bad is this going to get? But I listen, to the, I listen to, I don't listen to the Archers every day, I listen to Radio 4 every day, and it's the news, and it's making me afraid, it's making me angry. I didn't get upset when the Queen died, but lately I have been angry at everything that's going on, at leaders, at politics, at culture, at climate, at everything. And at the root of that anger is fear, and there is fear infecting our culture like a disease. Jesus said, go and tell the good news that people, everyone, everywhere, they are wanted by the King of Kings, and then drive out those forces that are separating them from that. Those forces today are fear. And that's what we do now. So I'm, I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to pray for those three things, that we'd know that we are wanted, that we would be compelled by the one who wants us, and we would be sent by the one who has compelled us. Okay? Let's stand. You can close your eyes, you can hold your hands out in front of you, you can stay seated, you can do whatever you want, but actually I think there is something powerful about choosing to stand, choosing to put your hands out and say, I I want in, I want to be counted, I want to be known, I want to be compelled by the one who knows me, and I want to go in power to spread that message and to drive out the forces that are telling people otherwise. Everyone everywhere, everyone everywhere is wanted by King Jesus. Let's close our eyes. Jesus, you are the one true king. Even Queen Queen Elizabeth herself, who we have looked up to for so long, many of us, bowed to the person of Jesus, bowed to you. You are the one true king. And whether we've ever given our lives to you before or not is irrespective. Now is the time to recognize that you are king and you are here doing a new thing and you are bringing around you a wacky bunch of people who are changing the world. That motley crew all those years ago started something that has never stopped. 2,000 years and it's only burning brighter. Jesus, I want in. I want to be in this fellowship. I've got my own mess. I'll let you down I'll betray you, I'll doubt, I'll get angry, I'm a bit of a wild card, 
I've got baggage. But Jesus, I want in. Because there's nothing else I can put my trust in. And if that's you, if you feel the same way, if you're feeling that stir inside of you, put your hands out in front of you. Or do something inside of you. Or say something out loud. Or raise your hands in the air. Or get on your knees and say, yeah, I want in. Count me in. This is your moment. You're Frodo and Sam and the rest of them. And you're stepping forward. And you're saying, I'll do it. I'll take the ring. Do something that says to Jesus tonight, I am going to follow you. Maybe you're saying it again. Maybe you're saying it for the millionth time. Maybe you're saying it in a new way. Maybe you're saying it for the first time. But say it all the same. I'm saying it. Jesus, I want in. Because I want to be known. It's the longing, the deepest longing in my heart is to be known. I want to know who created me. I want to know why I've been created. I want to be compelled by my creator. And I want to go in power to tell everybody else that they're wanted. And drive out the forces that are telling them otherwise. Jesus, come now by your Holy Spirit. To each and every one of us. Look, look at us right in the eyes. Tell us that we're wanted. Captivate our hearts. Compel us. And then propel us out into the world. In the name of Jesus. Amen.